Hi, and welcome to the 4th U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the 4th Universalist Society in the city of New York. For February's adult education at 4th Universalist, our theme is centered around confronting white supremacy. How do we engage these issues more deeply? Uh, one of the areas that we really wanted to look at is how do we engage white, with confronting white supremacy in a religious context? One of the efforts going on surrounding that is the work around the eighth principle in the UUA. And so I'm really excited today to be joined by Bruce Pollock Johnson. Uh, Bruce, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, so my name is Bruce Pollock Johnson. I'm a member and actually the assistant moderator at the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Philadelphia. Originally a universalist church, I guess like your congregation. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm the assistant moderator. I'm the head of our eighth principal team. Um, and uh, also uh, the coordinator of our justice council. And um, I coordinate, we have a folk music coffee house called the Folk Factory, which focuses on music and progressive social change. And my wife and I have been coordinating that for 30 years, 30 years that we've been here in Philadelphia. Speaking of this, this common universalist heritage, I think that Fourth Universalist has a prior name that it changed to Fourth Universalist later on. They, they had these very long names, it seems, these ones with the universalist heritage. So I, I guess I can appreciate that it was narrowed down to Fourth Universalist. And we're in the process, actually, as we speak, uh, we've had a several multi-year process of uh, thinking about changing our name mainly because of the church side with a number of members who are Jewish or of other backgrounds that did not feel comfortable with uh, the term church. And uh, we can even talk about that because that's been one of the things that's been affected by our eighth principle lens. Yeah, definitely. So tell me what led you to this eighth principle work? Could you maybe for our listeners who might not be familiar, talk a little bit about what exactly the eighth principle is? Sure. Uh, so the, um, I guess the, the eighth principle itself, I'll make sure that I get it, get it correct. I've got my little cheater card here, is intended to be uh, added to the existing seven principles, which all begin by saying members and congregations affirm and promote the following principles. And the one that... Um, we are proposing to add is says journeying toward spiritual wholeness by building a diverse multicultural beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other repressions in ourselves and our institutions. I can give you direct, direct uh, motivation for that. Originally, Paula Cole Jones and I helped to organize a Jubilee anti-racism weekend training in 2013 um, that we were both involved with. And that group got so energized by what happened over the weekend that they wanted to continue meeting on a monthly basis. And so that was where we were at the time. Uh, Paula has also been very active in the UUA as a consultant, sometimes as a staff person uh, related to diversity, anti-racism work, anti-oppression work. 
And uh, from the work that she had done with congregations, she just kind of observed that she sensed two different cultures, <laughs> depending on what church she went to. One culture was what she called the seven principle culture, and the other she thought of as the beloved community culture. Uh, and the, the concern was that a UU could believe that they were living by the seven principles and uh, be totally oblivious to systemic racism and, and other kinds of oppressions. And so there was this dilemma of how do we deal with that? And, and Paula had said to herself, you know, maybe we need another principle. And when she said it to me, I'm the kind of person that that night that she mentioned it, wrote it down and, and put something together. And then the next time we got together, we you know, looked at what I had, tweaked it a little bit, and then we brought it to the post-Jubilee group to get further input and, and suggestions and tweaks and pretty much, so that was you know, within a week or two of when we first put it together. Uh, and that's pretty much the, the format that it has been for the, the whole time. So that was kind of the immediate concern was uh, even though there are folks who would say that the other principles imply uh, the eighth principle, that that wasn't obvious enough to people. And so there was at least a need, maybe only temporarily, but a need to have something that explicitly made it raised it as an issue that people had to think about and deal with and, and to try to raise consciousness about that. Well, that as, as someone newer to the UU, that sounds familiar on my, my old, more evangelical and then more just traditionally mainline Christian context is you, you get lots of folks that say, oh, but, you know, the, the Bible implies this. Like, you know, if I believe the Bible, of course I believe this because, they, you know, they don't seem to want to, like, do any sort of formal commitment to, like, actually doing that work. Uh, and, and to me, it feels like, you know, a principle says well, this is a, a, a commitment that this is part of what we think is, is crucial to our journey as communities. Exactly. And that's uh, been one of the, you know, we, the UUA did a lot of great work in the 90s, including starting the Jubilee trainings and, and a lot of and having process observers for meetings and all kinds of great work. But since it wasn't part of the principles, when... The, the social justice fashion winds changed, uh, that work just kind of gradually uh, lessened. And so our feeling is that, you know, what's needed is, is some kind of a commitment. On a, on a personal level, you were obviously involved with, with the efforts to even just uh, get it started in the first place. What has this journey meant for you personally? Um, you know, how, how did you arrive at like kind of doing this kind of work? Has it always been really a passion uh, of yours to do justice related work? I was an exchange student in Australia, Melbourne, the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia and high school, which was at the height of uh, Vietnam protest era. And I had some friends uh, from school who were quite radical and uh, kind of politicized me more than I had been. I was kind of generally aware, but not, not hyper-political. Uh, and um, so that, I think, was the beginnings of, of my uh, 
more uh, extreme progressive leanings. And when I came, I guess, in college, even though I was good at math, which is what I do now, I uh, ended up majoring in sociology because I was just interested in social issues in general. I guess connected to church and other things had had a general concern. Act would you know get involved in rallies and things, uh, especially related to peace and justice issues. Uh, and then I guess then when I went to uh, when I finished my PhD, well, my PhD had to do with education planning uh, for education, uh, so that was still still a concern. It connected to the sociology in a lot of ways. But when I had the chance for my first job, I decided to go to Oberlin College, which was known as uh, one of the first, as the first college, I believe, that that enrolled both Black students and um, women. Uh, so it had a very progressive history. And so I was very enthusiastic about, about teaching there. Was very active. I eventually became part, uh, was the director of the Lorraine County Peace Education Project, educating people about nuclear uh, threat and things like that. Um, so was very active there. Uh, I even tried to get uh, also involved with uh, peace studies and tried to get a peace studies program started at Oberlin. Um, but at the time, the president was trying to transition Oberlin from activist progressive campus to the Harvard of the Midwest. Uh, so going more in a academic direction and, and so wasn't particularly supportive of my efforts to try to start a peace studies program. And one reason I came to Villanova, uh, which is where I teach now, is that they had and still have a very active and wonderful Center for Peace and Justice Education. Uh, there's now a major at the time, there was a certificate program, and I was able to immediately get active on that, helping to plan and um, staff Martin Luther King uh, freedom schools and, and special programs to raise awareness on campus. So that uh, you know, has been a long thread. I've also been involved in um, LGBTQ plus concerns in the 90s, especially after we first uh, came to Philadelphia in 1990 uh, and was working with, you know, we, I kind of coordinated the welcoming congregation program at our congregation when we did that and did sermons and, and speakers and things related to that. So still in the same vein, which is part of the eighth principle, but but less uh, direct focus on race at the time, although did Jubilee trainings and things like that. So um, was kept, kept up with that. But then uh, toward the, I guess, early 2000s was when I became more involved with uh, anti-racism, specifically the journey toward wholeness uh, program the group in our district called the Joseph Priestley District between Philly and and DC basically had a transition team trying to work on anti-racism in the congregations and and the district put on a conference every year um, 
And then our congregation was able to hire a minister of color in the mid-2000s, and he and I led a Building the World We Dream About curriculum at the time, which was wonderful. Had a great participation from a lot of different congregations in the area. I guess since then, it's been a major focus for me. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, obviously, I, I, I'm a touch younger, but I, I do also have uh, Vietnam as a, as a as a touching point in, in my life, I suppose, with my recent time there. Growing up in, in the evangelical kind of subculture, uh, I was in the Midwest. So, you know, it's the Midwest nice subculture and like the evangelical culture. So, you know, you don't you don't acknowledge that anything might be wrong. Uh, and so, you know, we we thought that racism was over, like it couldn't really be a real problem. Uh, but, you know, meanwhile, like all these you know, like racist comments being made at the school and like definitely like our the, the Christian school that I went to from like third grade to 12th grade had maybe five students of color. Like it was not, you know, looking back, like I'm like, wow, like this is this is um, a bad sign. Uh, but at the time, you know, it just was like, oh, it's just how things happen sometimes. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't really until um, probably like the the 2010s I got in, involved and active, probably about the time like Occupy was really one of the things that really truly radicalized me. Uh, right. And then after that, getting getting pulled into the Black Lives Matter sort of work and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's, that's been a little bit of my personal journey uh, has has like the work of like Black Lives Matter and like the the much more coverage of like uh, of racial injustice issues in the 2010s. Has that, you know, been radicalizing for you? I, I don't know. So I wanted to go back yeah. to something that you'd said because yeah. I connected with that. First of all, I, I grew up in a very white suburb of Boston, um, which could have been deadly. But my parents um, had a wonderful close friend. I, I think he was from Liberia. I was like two or three, so I was not terribly aware. Um, but uh, an, an African diplomat who uh, was friends uh, with, I think, my mother's parents. And uh, we had I just had a wonderful relationship with him. He would teach me how to do the um, glottal stops of uh, his language and, uh, and just to have this very warm, positive association uh, with him that I think helped to ground my attitude to race in, in something real and not just what was going on in the, in the racist air around me. Um, my father also was involved with a program called METCO, which was a voluntary busing program between the suburbs and Boston. And, and one of the uh, Boston kids who came to Westwood, my town, uh, stayed with a family a few doors down. So I got to play with him a lot. And, and again, that normalized relationships um, very, very much from the beginning. My parents were both very supportive of, of civil rights things going on. So um, I feel lucky that, that um, I think the right, the attitudes that I value were instilled deeply at an, at an early age. Uh, as far as the Black Lives Matter, uh, I think, you know, I was there a long time ago, but from the point of view of the eighth principle, it was great that the 
foundations were had been laid. And so there was something there when the winds all of a sudden picked up and, and uh, there were sails for it to fill uh, that that was perfect timing uh, from our point of view. And not only Black Lives Matter, but the fact that the UUA had their crisis in 2017 when the president had to resign was kind of a call to action uh, even before that. So there've been several waves of uh, world events that that made a difference. And, and for me personally in our congregation at the time of Ferguson in 2014, uh, we started doing uh, weekly vigils, Black Lives Matter vigils that we continue to this day. So it's been almost seven years. Um, and that was a nice way to develop a community within, because not only do we stand on the street for a half an hour and uh, hold honk for justice, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, and white supremacy signs, but then for half an hour, we light candles uh, related to concerns, related to racial justice, especially, and uh, share readings about black history things that are going on. And so that kind of built a cadre of um, kind of fellow travelers on this path that then when it came uh, time to to talk about and vote on adopting the eighth principle made it uh, easy. I mean, I think you hit on something, uh, you know, uh, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Uh, and, you know, I think it's always really important to be connecting across uh, varying age groups of activists. You know, as somebody who's, who's 32, uh, at times I feel like I'm almost this senior activist talking to some younger folks who are like, just starting out and full of all this young energy for activism. Uh, and, uh, but then, you know, it's always really important for me to like learn about all the work that was being laid down before me. So I think that was, you know, really great how you uh, illuminated how this was able to build on work that had already been going on. Because I think uh, so many times activists have, have the urge to reinvent the wheel. Uh, right. and, and it's best to be working together and working on, on the foundations that have been built as much as we can. We, one of the reasons that we especially uh, resonated with our congregation was that before we were there in the 60s, uh, when there was blockbusting going on by realtors trying to scare white residents um, of our neighborhood to go to the suburbs and make themselves more profit by turning the houses around. Um, the minister at our church uh, preached a sermon that actually spawned a neighborhood group, East Mount Airy neighbors, that um, worked together to to stop the blockbusting, basically, and, and maintain the neighborhood as, as an integrated neighborhood. Uh, and when we, Linda and I, were coming from Oberlin, moving back to Philadelphia, uh, we wanted to be in that neighborhood, which was partly because of the efforts of the church to, to make it the way it was. It's actually predominantly African-American neighborhood, um, but close to the, uh, there's kind of a, an east side and a west side. One side is more black, the other is a higher percentage of white, but general progressive food co-ops and things like that. So um, people who are aware of a lot of these issues. 
So pivoting back to uh, the work you do in terms of academics and education, um, you know, I think uh, you mentioned that your work is in math and I know that probably not a lot of people like sit down and think, you know, math activism, uh, that's probably not a lot of people's first thoughts. So right. uh, when I read your biography, I'm like, I gotta hear more about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would love to hear a little bit about this background in education and around like the justice work you've been doing in education, especially around math. Sure, the, uh, well, even back at Oberlin, uh, besides I did a full peace studies class, which wasn't particularly mathematical, so that, that was just itself. But um, I did, related to that, I did a course called Math and Negotiation, because there is a lot of math that can be connected to um, issues of negotiation. Um, so that, that, that went way back. Uh, then in my first maybe 20 years or so at Villanova, I was active with the Center for Peace and Justice, and I did math, which was applied math, so connecting to the real world, but not particularly to social justice. And all of a sudden, I realized that the negotiation class um, could tie into something. And so I created one class called um, Mathematics and Fairness. So just lots of different topics, for instance, voting systems, how people make decisions, how can that be done in a fair way? And then how to divide things up, whether it's for a divorce or uh, an estate or any other thing, because almost uh, lots of things involve dividing things up, budgets and things like that. Um, and then also the uh, things like gerrymandering and uh, redistricting and apportionment of how many representatives should each state get is a very mathematical problem. So I realized that there was enough material for a, a full course, and it actually gets counts uh, towards the, cent the Peace and Justice program, the major, um, but it also counts as math requirement for, for people that have to satisfy Villanova's math requirement. So a lot of people appreciate being able to do that with something that is connecting to the real world and, and peace and justice issues. Uh, and the in a similar way, there are math majors who uh, like to have a connection, maybe minoring or something in peace and justice and, and can combine those. Uh, so the, and then the other course, so that course is really mainly for freshmen, but all the math in it is so unique that it actually, I've had lots of upper class uh, students take it as well. We even do a little bit of proof and some other things that are more advanced math, but most of it is just almost nothing depends on high school math. So it, that that's uh, kind of nice for a lot of people that way. Uh, the other course is for math majors and it's called um, the research seminar that, that all math majors need to do have different topics. And so this one is just called math and social justice. And um, the idea is to find any area of social or racial justice that um, could have be helped by some kind of analysis uh, for it. Just the best example of this was the last time I taught it, which was uh, four years ago. One of the students heard about Pennsylvania has a fair funding formula for education. We had a presentation in the class about that. And she had the idea of um, looking at, so there's a formula, but it's not fully implemented. Only 
increases in the budget get funded according to this fair formula. The rest is the old political, unfair, racist <laughs> uh, allocations. And so she said, well, how about if we look at educational outcomes and see how whether being overfunded or underfunded affects educational outcomes? And, and she used post-secondary enrollment, like going to college or even a trade school would fit um, as the the measure of educational outcomes. And it turned out that there's a perfect peak. If you look at the data, it looks like an upside down V and the very peak is right at the point where districts are funded exactly according to the fair funding formula. If they're underfunded, this people do worse, but if they're overfunded, it also turned out that the results were not as good. That was such a powerful result that I brought it to the chair of the Democratic Budget Committee in Pennsylvania, who happens to have been a Villanova graduate. And so we, we were able to get in and showed it to him. And it's, you know, it doesn't prove that being overfunded causes worse results, but it's very strong evidence that that fair funding formula is right on the money, uh, so to speak. And uh, so it's been, it's been, you know, directly not, it was an academic exercise, but it had very practical activist implications as well. So many people separate like social activism to be like its own category, like, well, I'm going to go into activism. But I mean, the truth is that, you know, whatever our interests are, lots of these fields need people that are pushing back on like traditional narratives uh, and pushing back on the, the, the regular way of doing things, including even math. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's fascinating right. to me. And, and from a personal point of view, there were like, you know, two Bruce's. There was the math professor Bruce and there was the activist peace and justice Bruce. Uh, and they occasionally touched each other, but mostly not at the same time. And I was, you know, delighted when I could find a way to really be my whole self and bring things that uh, are my skill set to the efforts of, of activism and also bring the activism side and the awareness of, of oppressions to the mathematics side that, you know, it's not obvious that people are going to have that kind of exposure automatically in that field. Pivoting once again, uh, we, we talked a little bit, a lot earlier about uh, your home congregation. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the congregation, but then also what, like, what has this eighth principle journey been like for them? I believe uh, you said that they were they were the first to officially adopt the eighth principle as well. Right. They were the first uh, congregation in the UUA to adopt. And that was in 2017 after the um, resignation of the president of the UUA. But we actually uh, raised it in, I think, 2013, soon after we had written it, because since there are a number of people from the congregation involved in that post-Jubilee group, it was a natural thing to do. Uh, and what ended up happening was pretty interesting that there was general support. It was certainly very consistent with who we were as a congregation. Uh, the main issues that were raised were, um, well, what about women gender issues, you know, compared to um, to race, and then uh, other people said, "Well, what about class? Isn't you know race was really created related to class issues and economic exploitation, and and you know how can you separate out race?" So, at the time, uh, we weren't quite ready 
to adopt it as a principle on the level of a principle. But at the same time, somebody suggested, and it was a brilliant idea, why don't we just work it into our congregational covenant? So they weren't ready to say yet that this is the right thing for the whole UUA, but it made so much sense with our history, with the civil rights time uh, to, to just incorporate it. And so basically seated in appropriate places in our covenant, all the wording of the eighth principle it was there. And, and that was um, totally supported uh, overwhelmingly uh, at the time. And so, you know, essentially we were, had adopted it, but not in the formal principle kind of way. And then when the president resigned in 2017, that felt like the time that it made sense to then just go ahead and make it official as a principle. And so when we have an order of service, it says there are eight principles with a little asterisk beside the eighth saying that, you know, we've adopted this as an individual congregation. The UUA is in the process of making a decision about this. But we wanted to give it full, uh, full equality um, from our point of view. As somebody new to the to the UU, uh, but who's definitely found a home in the UU, I think it's it's, it's very interesting. Like I've, one of the first things once I heard about it was that I wanted to dive in and learn, you know, so much more about this eighth principle uh, because it's like that 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 speaks to me like the the idea of elevating this commitment to creating this more equal, more truly welcome community uh, as a principle of what we truly stand for. I think. Uh, you know, it's, it's important work for congregations to, to recognize that as like something that's not just something that they're about, but that's something that's a driving force for them. Exactly. And one of the things about UU that I guess, uh, you know, I don't know how much you've studied it, but one of the beauties that I find is its dynamism. There, we're actually, we haven't followed our own guidelines, but we're supposed to revisit the uh, principles every 10 years and it, it's been, I think, since uh, 1985 was the, the last time uh, that they were really changed. So we're way behind, uh, you know, what, what we wanted to be doing for ourselves. And the fact that it's a dynamic, it's understanding that our consciousnesses get raised as time passes. And basically the change in the 80s related to both uh, gender issues and pronouns and that kind of pronouns, <laughs> um, male-female kind of pronouns at the time, and the environmental awareness that the, the seventh principle added. Um, and so certainly the level of awareness related to racism has multiplied uh, in, in the time since 1985 and feels like it's just the time is right uh, to, to make that change. And if anybody's been to General Assembly in the last three years, you'll hear much more of the language of the eighth principle than you will any of the other seven principles in the actual work that's being done and the, the kind of cutting edge of, of where things are moving. Dynamism, I think is the word you use. I think that's uh, very important, like to, to keep things fresh. I, I did not know about the, that we're supposed to review them every 10 years. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a new little fact that I'm gonna pack away for, for UU trivia night. Um, but I mean, I think that that's important that we, that we stop and reflect on, on what is most relevant in this, in this moment because everything, 
everything keeps changing and so should we. Um, when I, to, I'm gonna unpin an idea way back for the question way back from the beginning. You mentioned that, that your congregation was talking about changing name and that this was somewhat influenced by your work uh, around the A principle as a congregation. So do you wanna talk a little bit more about that? I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. Cause the, um, and this is probably true for most congregations, our bylaws basically say that all decisions have to be made by, you know, majority rule with occasional higher percentages for certain kinds of categories of votes, like changing the bylaws or um, voting to disband the whole congregation, take a higher percentage. One of the issues in, the, in my math and fairness class, I, I talk about different kinds of voting systems, ranked voting and approval voting and other things, but I also do some very non-mathematical sides of decision-making, including something called modified consensus and very closely related um, sociocracy or consent uh, decision-making. Uh, modified consensus and consent are very similar and the idea is to avoid what's called the tyranny of the majority that, um, you know, if you think about being in the South, uh, Jim Crow laws could be passed by a majority, but that doesn't mean that they were in keeping with our value of the Declaration of Independence, for example, or, or other kinds of principles that we uh, claim. And the idea of modified consensus is that you can take a normal vote, but any individual can block the vote by casting a blocking vote based on the principles or values of the organization. So in our case, that's the seven or the eight principles uh, is an obvious basis for, for being able to do that. I was aware of this because the school that our kids both went to uh, up through eighth grade was an independent school, started as a public school, but it was a little too radical, I think, for the Philly public schools. And so it, it went off on its own and it made decisions that way. Uh, and it didn't, in some ways it didn't change a lot, but it meant that if someone raised a concern, you knew you couldn't just ignore it if it was a substantial concern. And my observation was almost always the final result of a proposal was much better than the original proposal because people had to take each other's feedback seriously and uh, including voices of people of color or, or from other kinds of marginalized groups that, you know, if you just did a majority vote, they might speak, but there's, there's no reason that they would have to be listened to. We didn't have time yet to actually change our process but in working on this name, what we did try to do was to make sure that there was, rather than, you know, we went through a process, came up with a proposal from the name change committee, but instead of just taking a simple vote on it, we first of all had several listening sessions to get feedback from everybody. And even if there were people that didn't speak up at those sessions, we made an effort to call anybody who either hadn't been at a session or hadn't spoken up to see if there were any underlying concerns uh, that might be related to identity groups that people might not have wanted to bring up in, in a larger context. 
And it turned out that there, there were some things like that. For example, a number of Black members had very positive associations with a Black church that they grew up with. And that word church was important to them. That was significant for them. And so we did some brainstorming about what might be a way. So the, the original proposal had said uh, Unitarian Universalist Community of Mount Airy, which is the name of the neighborhood where we are. But the community proposal didn't convey the sense of faith or religion that those people valued. And so then we evolved to the idea of congregation, which did communicate more of a church feel. And it looked like that's where we were going to end up. Uh, but then in a later conversation, someone mentioned that, uh, you know, earth-based spirituality folks or people who have kind of pagan orientation, even congregation was not, it's, it's a bigger tent. They, it definitely includes Christianity and, and Jewish backgrounds. And some people would say maybe Muslim as well. They're, we had kind of a different opinion about whether Muslim people that we knew would would feel comfortable with that or not. That added to our conversation. And uh, right now, as we speak, people are expressing um, the, the name that we're close to is just Unitarian Universalists of Mount Airy or in Mount Airy or Mount Airy you use. That would, and it, it turned out that we had a, a fishbowl exercise with people representing each of the major groups that had strong feelings about this. And, and that was the, the name that everybody felt most comfortable with. So, so we actually ended up in a somewhat different place than we might have originally because of this kind of looking at the decision from an eighth principle lens rather than the old, you know, white culture, get it done quickly and efficiently. <laughs> point of view as a, as a wrap-up question i feel like we've you know touched on it in, in most all of the questions uh but kind of as a as a wrap-up question if somebody was to just walk up to you on the street uh and say why do you think it's important for religious communities for you maybe in particular to be proactive in confronting white supremacy like why, do, why does this need to be something that we're very intentional about versus just something that's kind of out there why do, why do you think that's important first of all i think that uh, working against racism and oppression or working for racial justice and other kinds of justice is very spiritual work, uh, that it can't only be activism, but it, it, it involves working on ourselves and, and deep levels of ourselves and connecting with other people. So that that's kind of, from that point of view, a natural place for it to start. From a more practical or um, metaphorical point of view that the civil rights movement really got its strength from churches. And um, I think uh, most of us would agree that we want progress in this area. And the place that seems most likely to make significant progress is in faith communities. Um, you know, not only UU, but especially UU being, I think, near or at the forefront of this kind of work and, and having the flexibility, the nimbleness, they would say, in a, in a work kind of environment to, to change our principles quickly to be able to move in that direction, whereas uh, even other 
religious organizations, especially ones that have a lot of hierarchy or, or um, administration could have a lot more difficulty in, in being able to pivot as quickly as, as UUism can. So I think it's really an opportunity to, to be leaders um, and, and that the potential, I see certainly the biggest potential for the UU movement as being moving in this direction. Um, we had some, we have monthly phone Zoom gatherings about the eighth principle, we call it the eighth principle learning community. And one of the congregations said basically, if you wanted to attract people under 40, you should adopt the eighth principle. And then when we had a bunch of uh, people of color speaking about it, it was very clear that the ones whose congregations had adopted it felt that that was basically a, a communication of love to them personally from their congregation that meant a huge amount to them. And the ones whose congregations had not acted, they were feeling more and more distant from. So I think a very clear message that if we really mean what we say about wanting to be inclusive and diverse and um, welcoming and radically welcoming that this is the direction that we need to go. And, and if we do, the sky's the limit. There's incredible potential. A wonderful note for us to, to wrap up the questions with. Uh, so Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to all of our listeners, of course. If you're listening to this before February 23rd, uh, Bruce is going to be uh, joining uh, Fourth Universalist for our In Conversation event on Zoom. Uh, you can find out the details for that on our website. Uh, and if you're listening to this after February, then the video replay of that will be available on our YouTube as well. So feel free to, to check that out if you're listening in the far, far future. Uh, so thank you, listeners. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thanks for inviting me, Amber. This was really great.